Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. We're dedicated to eradicating mental health inequalities by changing policy and practice. So you may have noticed that we've been a little quiet on the podcast lately. We've been incredibly busy over 2020 supporting those at the front line of this pandemic, which, as we know, is also a mental health crisis. You can take a look at all our work on COVID and especially our work around equality and mental health at www.centreformentalhealth.org.uk. But we are delighted to be back up and starting with this great conversation between our Chief Executive Sarah Hughes and Nathan Dennis from First Class Foundation. It's a brilliant, encouraging and at times sobering conversation about racial inequality and mental health Nathan's own journey to becoming the founder of a charity doing amazing work in Birmingham, fear in racialised communities about the COVID vaccine, and also how Nathan and his family are managing their own well-being. Welcome, Nathan, to the Centre for Mental Health podcast. It's lovely to have you as one of our guests. Awesome. You are one of our favourite people, as you know. I mean, in my job, I think uh, the best thing is that I get to meet extraordinary people, and you are definitely one of those. And I hope today that we can just um, think with you about the big things that are important, but also uh, let the world know uh, the extraordinary work that you do as part of your day job, really, in First Class Legacy. So it'd be good to sort of touch base on that as well. Um, we don't want to lose awesome. sight of that. You know me, for, I need to give credit where credit's due. I love the centre. Um, the Centre for Mental Health has really changed our organisation's life. And um, through the independent evaluation that we went through, we was able to really get a strong sense of our, our purpose. And, you know, everyone bands around the theory of change and all that. So, yeah, it's been a, a mutual respect and journey. Um, and just to say as well, um, so in 2020, obviously one of the craziest years known to man, we went through a transition. So we actually separated our organization. So we're now officially, um, as a charity, First Class Foundation. So we're a charitable foundation, CIO. And then we have our limited company, which is trading name, goes under the name of Legacy Consultants, which really specializes in helping companies think about how they engage with diverse communities. Um, We was saying BAME communities, but we're trying to move away from that term um, because it's not specific enough. So we're saying we're experts at helping organisations effectively engage black stakeholders from African and Caribbean communities. I love this. And it very much chimes with the work that we're trying to do in the organisation around anti-racism and language and and all of that is so important. Nathan, you and I um, met a few years ago and I'll never forget uh, the first time I saw you speak in the House of Lords. And it was so overwhelming for me. I was so kind of captivated by your spirit and by your intentionality around the work that we were doing together and that relationship we had created around the evidence base. Um, can we just hear a little bit about about you just as a person and about your journey over the last few years? I mean, I think that there is something really important about where you've come from and where you are now. Yeah. And, and I think, in, you know, we also want to talk about how COVID has impacted you because we, you and I have had lots of conversations about that. And um, I think you've managed to really identify some specific issues for families and communities that I'd like us to mention. But tell us about you. So, yeah, um, I'm Nathan Dennis. Um, my proudest achievements in life is being a husband 
to Sabrina Dennis, my wife, who's CEO of our Charity First Class Foundation, and the father of four daughters. Um, our oldest is 16, youngest seven. Um, those are my like proudest achievements. Um, as I was saying previously, we now have a charity arm, which is First Class Foundation, which is a CIO, um, where I'm a trustee. And we also have our training consultancy, legacy consultants, that really helps companies think differently around how they engage with African and Caribbean black communities. I think it's important that we be specific because I think that many companies are hiding behind the BAME data. And actually, when you start to distill the information, you're seeing that actually people still don't have black staff in their workforce. They may have an Asian person, they may have someone from China, for instance, and it all gets counted for as BAME. When you ask me the question, Sarah, about tell us about your story, it's such a loaded question because I have for many years purposely edited my story and my journey. And I edit it because I feel that unfortunately society does judge you um, mm. sometimes and can hold you prisoner to being like a service user or ex-offender or whatever you want to say. But, you know, I grew up in Birmingham, West Midlands, um, around a council estate, um, mainly in a single parent home experience. When I was a teenager, I made poor choices that led me to spend a very short time in juvenile um, prison when I was a teenager. I had a moment where my, my daughter, my first daughter was born and I had to make a decision. Um, I was seeing the kind of statistics for black men in my community. And I kind of like made up my mind that I didn't want to be a stereotype. I didn't want to be someone that's just a statistic. Uh, my daughter was born. Um, I decided that Sabrina was the one for me. We got married and what happened was when my daughter was born, I came to faith. So I, I started to attend the local church and that really had a massive impact on my life in terms of coming to faith, becoming a born again Christian. And I decided to have this real desire and passion burning inside of me to kind of like go into the very community I've come from and make a difference. Um, now I can kind of articulate what that difference is. So like when we talk about it from my charity objectives, there's like three key objectives that we want to do is we want to reduce youth violence, we want to improve mental health resilience with young people, and we want to connect young people and their families to their purpose through exposing them to more opportunities. So I'm very succinct now. I know what um, I've been through loads of journeys. I started off my journey as like a, basically a school speaker. I used to speak in schools and share my story, my transition, my change, my transformation. But then I kind of like, shied away from it or moved away from it for a bit because I felt like when I was getting a lot of like press interest there was just wanted to kind of always just talk about the past mm. and I'm like mm. I'm doing lots of things in the present and I've got big visions of, for the future and I just felt like I was being pigeonholed so I kind of like stopped sh sharing that part of me and just really focused on infrastructure and building our organization and making the work speak for itself. And that, that is extraordinary. And, and some of the, the work that I certainly have, you know, had the privilege of um, observing and being involved in and the many conversations you and I have had, I think there's something about the work that you do, which is incredibly authentic. And there's something um, that you were just talking about there in terms of your faith and how that in terms of your building communities and relationships has been incredibly important. Can you say a bit more about, about that, just in terms of, you know, how that helps today in terms of dealing with all the, the issues we've got to deal with? Yeah, it's the, it's the cornerstone of who I am, to be honest. Um, 
many people, you know, the project that we've been doing together that's been evaluated, um, we've had an independent evaluation for over 18 month period. And I mean, now with the shift in the partnership are going through an evaluation process. And the truth of the matter is, is that at the core of me is my faith, is a real kind of like routine discipline about how I get up. I get up very early. I spend a lot of time in prayer. People use the words meditation. I do I do that. I do a lot of breathing. Um, I try when I can. I'm not being lazy. Exercise. But I journal incredibly a lot. Um, I read a lot of um, Christian material. And I feel that like center just, just keeps me centered. It keeps me energized. And then I'm able to um, pour into the community. And a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, I just believe it's like purpose. Like this is what I was born to do. I believe, you know, you, you referred to the moment when we met at the um, House of Commons. What people don't understand is that my behind the scenes of that was, I took, like I personally, through my practice, I went into a period of fasting and preparation because I felt like I was having the opportunity to speak before very senior people in society around the mental health arena. And I wanted to make sure that what I said was impacting not just the psych psychology or the, the mental of people, but I wanted to connect with people's heart because I knew that I needed change. I was in a, um, a, a real negative cycle within the organization where we were just getting a day rate here, getting a session here. Oh, can you come and do this? Can you come and do that? But it just wasn't sustainable. and. I remember specifically in my speech, I was talking about we need a chance to be able to um, really test our theory and our, and our model, especially around me building mental health resilience with African and Caribbean young men. Um, and it just all happened that within that meeting, um, it's almost like my prayers got answered because someone from the lottery um, passed me his card, he's a director, and he says, look, what is it that you need, Nathan? I said, I just need someone to give us a chance. Like, just give us a chance we need minimum of three years worth of resources to be able to go through a journey. And he invited me down to London um, for a meeting. And because of the incredible relationship I had and formed with um, then Lorraine Carney, who was the director of children and young people at the Centre for Mental Health, I phoned her and I said, Lorraine, I've got this amazing opportunity. Could you come to this meeting with me, please? And then I called a gentleman by the name of Beresford Dawkins from NHS um, Mental Health Foundation. And I said, could you just come to the meeting? I know what I'm going to say to them, but just, just stand with me so we just look like a team, a partnership. And long story short, we've got the resource and we're here on this journey. Um, and it's been an incredible journey because a lot of the stuff I do, um, I took for granted in terms of my facilitation ability, the way how our projects feel and how service users receive our projects. And it was through um, the evaluation process and having people like Lorraine Khan doing like, and participation observation and like doing interviews with our um, delegates and sitting in forums and in training and articulating it in an academic way what we was doing is only then I realized what we had was quite powerful and unique. And I think that that definitely uh, speaks volumes to the power of kind of making sure that work is evaluated and that there is an evidence base for what you do but you know what you're doing is something about breaking down barriers in communities. And we can't um, speak to you, Nathan, without really thinking about COVID and about the impact mm -hmm. COVID has had on communities, specifically from uh, African Caribbean communities, because I think it's fair to say that um, in many instances, they've had the worst deal. And, and I guess the pain of that, all of us are trying to deal with at the moment, but you 
uh, have been doing quite specific things over the last year to help your community directly. And so can you tell us a bit about what you think are the main issues, how people have been affected and what you've been doing um, to help? Um, there's so much we've been doing. So going back to the project that we're a part of together, that project was like a monthly provision, but we had to make that weekly. So we started to put everything online using Zoom platform to create a space for young people for an hour just to check in emotionally, just it was like group time, just literally simple checking in. How are you? How are you doing? And then we would invite different guest speakers who I found quite motivational and inspirational, just giving them practical tips of how to mentally survive the first lockdown. Um, and in addition to that, we've started a new initiative through the charity called First Class Families Initiative, which is basically in the, the most simplest way, a hamper service. Um, and it really came from a drive. So after the, the first lockdown, I was going for a drive in some of the most poorest parts of Birmingham. And I literally, my heart was just starting to weep because um, it was the first time that I'd seen people after the first lockdown and I could just see the poverty. I could see the, the depression on the people. And I just felt so compelled that we had to not only be doing the programs that we're doing, but we the, the people needed food, but I didn't want it to be a food bank because I feel that there's an unfortunate um, stigma attached to food banks and it's like oh you, you have to be down and out to engage with it so what we do is like we create these massive baskets um, it's like a gift we put you know resources in there for children and people nominate for our website um, families and when they when the hamper gets delivered to people's homes you're being nominated um, you know we say um, congratulations you're a first class family you've been nominated as and and it's more of like an upliftment you're special you're amazing um, and I really want to just move away from that kind of no offence to everyone that's doing food banks, I think they're phenomenal and they're needed, but I wanted everyone that interacted with that um, to feel empowered and to really feel loved. So we put like, um, we handwrite cards as well in there, just to tell them that, um, just want you to know that someone's thinking about you, you are loved and you are cared for. Um, and my wife, Sabrina, she handwrites all the cards that we put in the, um, the hampers. So that's one thing. And then around the agenda of trying to reduce youth violence every Monday, um, we have these power hours where we have many young women, young men who have lived experience of being involved in youth violence um, come on the platform and speak and share with young people their story, why they got out. Um, people who have been in prison and done long-term stretches, 10 years plus, who share the harsh, harrowing reality of um, life in prison, not glamorised at all, and really try and encourage young people and parents that come on the platform to just talk about, look, this is not the life you want to be living um, and unfortunately, even as we're preparing for this, Birmingham again was devastated with another tragedy um, of a young boy fatally killed outside his house to be honest, stabbed, then shot. Um, and through my ministerial hat that I have, I've, I've facilitated a number of prayer vigils. So lighting tea light candles, um, laying flowers at the scene. I facilitate like minute silences on the street. And then I'd offer words of prayer and comfort for those who are there. Um, through that incident, I've done that twice because I've done one at the Pacific scene and then there was a young people's gathering. They wanted to do a balloon release for the young man who fatally was killed. Um, so yeah, it's, there's there's a lot we're doing. But one of the things that COVID's really highlighted is just the health inequalities. Um, something that we knew that was coming up through the work that I did being a part of the Equalities Commission that you set up. And it's, 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 it's really bad in, in terms of like health inequalities. 
when you think about some of the communities that we serve, they're living in high-rise flats with no garden. They're living in masonettes, mm-hmm. no garden. They don't have green leafy parks. When you look at the percentages of trees that they have, they don't have good trees. So in terms of oxygen and just basic things that we take for granted, um, because of the economic impact as well, you find that people are eating rubbish, like tinned food full of salt and preservatives and stuff, not like healthy, fresh food. So it's just, it's really, it's really real. And you know what i And then there's, as you would be aware, um, through mainstream media, there's a lot of conversations around why is the black community or Bain communities so reluctant to take the vaccine? That is rooted in history. One of the things that when George Floyd was tragically murdered in America, he highlighted this whole conversation that we need to have about race, equality, inclusion, anti-racism, all this kind of stuff. And one of the things I think the health professional industry in the UK have, have never really been honest about is the, the, the horrible history in terms of even in, in health and medical journals, how black people are referred to. There's things where like it says, oh, black people have a higher pain tolerance. You know, if you go really deep and you look research stuff, it talks about how black people wasn't even considered human. And this was this is literature that is people who are very supposedly educated, have researched and qualified and have doctorates in. Um, there's just that stuff. There's a particular brand, I won't say that, the brand, but one of the main brands that's doing the vaccine rollout, there is history and a, a big paper trail of how many times that Pacific company has gone to Africa and done testing on black people in Africa to test out new products and, you know, underpaid village chiefs to get people to go through the test, you know, like to real do live testing of their their products. But no one wants to acknowledge that. And then people are kind of like demonized now in the media Mm -hmm. for like, if someone says, oh, I'm not sure about this vaccine, what's this all about? And people also forget at the start of this pandemic, there was two, I believe, French doctors that says publicly on TV, um, yeah, we're going to do our testing of that. We should do the testing of vaccines um, in Africa. People don't forget these things. People don't see this. There's been a, a history of distrust between the black community and the system. So why do people think that all of a sudden, because the government has said it, that, you know, the trust levels are the same? It's not the same. Nathan, you know, just I could I could literally listen to you all day because you're so incredibly captivating. And I think what you're speaking to is the profound nature of systemic racism and the intergenerational impact of that. And, you know, that was something that we discovered in our first evaluation with you. But I think that point about health resistance because of the incredibly punitive and Um, you know exploitative relationship with health up until now is absolutely why there is mistrust and it feels dangerous and I think you know for many communities at the moment they are isolated excluded being blamed they're in the you know um, firing line for so much and I think that um, you know one of the things that I'm really struck by in terms of the way you speak about your community the way you develop your interventions is that you talk about words like love and dignity 
And these are words that we really struggle to use in health and care. You know, these are things that we are told, you know, in our training, you know, don't use that language. You've got to have boundaries. Remember, you're the professional and that person is that person. And I always struggled with that. It's never, ever how I felt. And um, over the years have have really resisted that and and spoke um, many years ago about the reason I do this work is because, of my love for my fellow man, woman, you know, that that I have a deep sense of duty for, you know, the health of the people that I love and the people I live alongside. And you deeply share that. And I was really struck about the things that you said about, you know, the hamper service, you know, it's really important that that's about dignity and respect. It's not about putting somebody in a position of other or less than. Yeah, we, it's important to make people feel special. There's a saying that I love and I, I try and live by. People don't care about how much you know until they know how much you care. And this is where the system has been broken for me. Is There's many people who are much more qualified than me, academic than me, and know much more than me and can articulate their points much better than me. But you have to understand that at the root of community and humanity is that people don't really care how much knowledge you have and statistics you want to give them. They really care about how much you care about them and can they feel it? Is it real? Is it genuine? And that's one of the things I try and live by. It's like, it's about caring first. It's heart work first. Um, and even with like, there's something I do when I, when I have the opportunity to engage back with young people, there's a talk I designed and it's called um, why I chase purpose and not profit. And I really encourage young people about finding their purpose, finding what it is you believe you are on this earth to do. Because I believe that everyone, just the same way how our fingerprints are unique and our DNA is unique, I believe there's something unique about each and every one of us. And we should make it our priority to find out what that God-given purpose is. And I find that once you're in your purpose, you don't even feel like you're working because it's just what you're doing. It's like, it's just part of what you need to do. And this is like, and just to put in an, another um, perspective, this is why we've we've created like now legacy consultants training and, and consultancy. And one of the things that we say is that the first thing that we do is, is build relationship. That's the number one value, create spaces to have conversations because we feel that many people are not having conversations. People have the strategic plan or the EDI plan and all these reams of paper. But if you're not having real, authentic, genuine conversations, how are we going to bring about real and authentic and genuine change? And I'm talking about systemic change. We can't no longer just do things like business as usual. Like I'm working with too many companies, Sarah, that when I look at their board, when I look at their senior leadership team, it's just really white. And like how... How can that exist when, when the population is so diverse now? We can't keep on paying lip service. Radical change has to happen. And when I say the word radical, I'm saying it needs to just be revolutionary. It needs to be something different. We can't be doing the same old, same old. And as you know, from a charity lens, I'm, I'm growing this increasing passion, Sarah, to share my journey of like what it's really like to be a Black-led charity in the UK. And coming from a grassroots perspective, because I'm telling you, Sarah, if we did not meet the Centre for Mental Health 
I don't think we will be still here. And that is just the truth of it because it is draining because you're constantly having to prove yourself through a kind of Eurocentric lens. Mm. You get evaluated through a Eurocentric lens. You're constantly asked to compete against charities who have in their reserves millions. And it's like, we're always going to look like a risk because I, I don't have reserves at the moment, like in no millions. We're trying to now develop that practice and that policy, but it's really hard. And, you know, when you're all trying to prove yourself to a senior leadership team or a decision-making panel who are a middle-class white, it's like sometimes you just don't, you, you, you get misunderstood. And that's why going back to the first thing that I talked about, Sarah, I've unfortunately had to be intentional about editing bits of my journey because it that becomes another barrier like oh ex-offender is when he was a juvenile and unfortunately people hold on to those things and people don't understand that actually you can change transform be a leader and found a trustee of a charity and a senior consultant of your own consultancy and make money and you know what I'm trying to say if all your success people want to try and hold you to these you know things of the past and it's like yeah I've had to navigate that but I'm in a place where more and more especially when George Floyd died I'm just saying you know what I'm just going to be more authentically me like you know loud and proud this is who I am you either love me or hate me but it's up to you I'm just going to still be well (laughs) as you know um we are uh team Dennis at the center and we love your wife and we love your children and we love everything about the way in which you conduct your life and it feels really values led that purposeful and I find you know every conversation with you incredibly inspiring and I always come away thinking I want you know I contemplate things that we've spoken about and um, I wonder Nathan just before we close can you just tell us a little bit about how you and your family maintain that sense of purpose because we had a you and I had a conversation about this recently about how you work with your children to help them maintain purpose in light of social media, peer pressure, um, you know, the pandemic, homeschooling, could you give any tips or thoughts to parents like me out there that are dealing with all of those things too? In, I come from a Jamaican heritage and there's a, there's a saying in the Jamaican culture, um, dance a yard before you dance abroad. So what that saying is trying to say, so I'm trying to say in English, dance a yard before you dance abroad so it means like practice what you're preaching like make sure that whatever you're going out there to tell to other people you first do it at home the yard means home and that is something that like I've been so passionately intentional um so one of the things that we implemented years ago probably over 10 years ago now was a thing called family conferences so every year I would meet with my family and have a conference once a year and as a father of the house, I would present the finances. Back in the day when we first done it, I would present all the debt that we had. Um, I would um, give a vision for where I want to see us go as a family. And then we'll do like arts and craft things to make it really inclusive for the children and like get to do things like vision boards and talk about how, how would you like your future to be. Every week we do a thing called family service where we have circle time, no phones, no devices, and it's checking in. And it's just a simple question how are you and how's your week been? And the children check in. We've done like Thanksgiving services where we just write as many things and draw as many things that we're thankful for. Um, three weeks ago, we we done an exercise called a gratitude jar. Got loads of colour paper. All the kids rip 
on the paper, all the things that they're grateful for. And so this is our family gratitude jar. When anyone's feeling a bit low or down, we go in the jar and pull it out and remember some of the things that we're grateful for. And then the final thing I'll probably say, there's loads of other stuff I could say, is um, really passionate about trying to teach our children charity. So we've said to them that they all have to have their own charity that they're going to give to and why. And it's, it's just trying to always put that and instill in them that, you know what, it's always about helping other people. So yeah, that, that's what we, we do all the time. And Kitchen Table Talks always make sure where possible, we don't book meetings at dinner time. So we sit at the table and we have a quick check-in. Just a quick tip if someone was listening. Um, the question, one of the questions I use sometimes is two wins and a challenge. Give me two wins for today and a challenge that you've had today. And it's just a conversation starter. Nathan, you are an extraordinary friend to the centre. We really admire everything that you do in your day job and your uh, the way that you live your life. It's an inspiration to us all. So thank you for joining us in the, our podcast. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll be friends for a long time to come. We're doing work together and uh, I'm sure there's more and more around the corner. So thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd like to know more about us or to donate to our work, just go to www.centerformentalhealth.org.uk.